The following episode features conversation with a practicing entertainment lawyer. It should not be confused for legal advice, as all situations are unique. Hey everyone, it's Cameron here from Framework, the last podcast about film, episode nine. It's a special episode, a bonus episode featuring a special guest. Her name is Olivia. She's the host of the Canadian Made, the podcast, as well as an entertainment lawyer in Toronto, Ontario. And today we're going to talk about the legal and business side of the film and television industry. So stay tuned and I hope you enjoy. So it was just a mess of paperwork and it's a lot of paper, right? Like it's, it's that's the secret of producing. Like yeah. it's not glamorous. It's just paperwork. It's just paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and every production that I've done, mostly, mostly short independent stuff since, since graduating school, um, in 2019. Um, and every production gets a little bit bigger and every production gets a bit more paperwork, which is, so it's a good e ease of the way into, um, hopefully, um, maybe slightly different work in the future, but, um, hopefully something similar and more regular and more paperwork and bigger as I go on. So. Yeah, well, I mean, that's like congratulations to you because, like, to have graduated in 2019, like, just on the edge of pan on the pandemic, and be you know getting gigs that I would consider to be like good gigs, um, starting out, like you're on the right path. So you know, it's good to hear that too. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. It's it's really nice to hear that because you know, in the middle of a, uh, a global catastrophe, um, you. You you know I struggled getting jobs and interviews and I think most people did, and I applied the masters earlier than I wanted to because of COVID and then didn't get in so it's just like you know then your stress level goes up and you wonder if you're in the right field of work. <laughs> yeah, um, you know what I was actually reflecting on this in my own journey this morning and it is such a tough time to like be in your young twenties and like worried about where you're getting your next paycheck from mm -hmm. and there's no clear prescribed path towards success in this industry. So it's really sometimes feels like it's hard to like jump onto the, you know, treadmill of the industry, if you will. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm super, super sympathetic to what you're going through and, you know, good for you for keeping at it. Cause it sounds like it's working out. Yeah. And I, I mean, and, and we'll see what the future holds really that, and I've done so many, different jobs and you just kind of land in something and I think something will take off eventually. And, um, the podcasting was an easy way to pivot too. Cause in the beginning of COVID and, and even now too, there's always, uh, you know, I was one of the projects we just did. I, I got COVID so I couldn't go on set. So it's still happening. Your projects are still being affected by COVID. And at the beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew what the heck was going on. And podcasting was an easy way. I'm sure you found this to do things virtually and maintain quality and consistency. And it's relatively cheap to put on a podcast, too. You can spend a lot of money on it if you choose to, but you don't have to. Um, I completely agree. There's no barrier to entry, really. Yeah. And um, and it's a great way to connect with people in a virtual setting too and I still continue to do all my podcasts virtually mm -hmm. though I am flirting with the idea of uh some in-person ones something what oh. about what about you though what's your background where where are you where do you come from 
So um, the SparkNotes version is mm -hmm. that I went to drama school in England mm -hmm. and, you know, the 18-year-old version of myself had aspiring dreams to be an actress. And um, I uh, was broken down, as many people are, <laughs> by drama school. And I kind of graduated with the sense that I, I wanted to do something behind the scenes. I, I've always kind of been drawn to the film and TV industry and it has always kind of like sparked something inside of me. So I knew I was in the right industry, just kind of doing the wrong thing. So I worked um, for Stephanie Gorin, who you may know is a mm -hmm. really prominent casting director in yep. Toronto. And, um, and I loved working with her and I loved being behind the scenes. And um, at that point, I was kind of stuck about what to do next and how to progress my career. Because although I loved working in casting, it's, it's a long slog of being kind of at the bottom of the barrel until you're a, a casting associate or casting director and I wasn't really prepared to go on that journey so I was looking for options of like what else to do and I had some friends at the time who were in law school and this was I mean when I was first started thinking about law school it was there was a lot of pay equity stuff in Hollywood and there were some prominent entertainment lawyers like speaking out about it and I thought okay like that's a really interesting career path that um, has you know this nice structure to it uh, which was very enticing to me and uh, and so I decided to go to law school we you know with the dream of becoming an entertainment lawyer and I was extremely fortunate that it happened really quick for me uh, that I got an entertainment uh, law job right right out basically and um, and that's what I've been up to. So I, I love it. It's like a more unconventional uh, path, I think, to be a part of the industry. Um, you know, most people just work their way up from being a PA, but, um, but I, I do love it and I'm, I'm really happy with where I am. Yeah, I mean, and congratulations finding yourself in, in where you are now and in what feels like, um, fairly quickly. I mean, it, you know, you made that change. You talk about having those dreams at 18. And I think those, those dreams are very common for a lot of people. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, a friend of mine, well, no, he's not really a friend anymore, an acquaintance of mine, I would say, I worked with him once. Um, he said, when he went to college, the professor in the first class said, put your hand up if you want to be a director. And uh, ninety-eight percent of people put their hands up. And then in the same class, but four years later, he asked the same question, and two people put their hand up. Oh, and so everybody came into college with like, you know, with and this happened at Sheridan too, maybe not that drastically, but um, you know, everybody comes into college with some sort of dream in their head. I mean, I wanted to be a director and then totally changed in, in second year, um, at the end of second year. I had a friend of mine who I still work with who came in wanting to, you know, either do directing or cinematography. And he took, he took maybe two directing classes and he realized I definitely don't want to be a director. So he's not doing that. So it, I, I think... I think it's a dream that we have for, for quite some time. I mean, I want to be a director for a long period of time. And then it didn't take very long to switch that off and move, move on to something else. It's interesting how that works. Um, so what's the dream now? Yeah, so <laughs> I, it's, uh, it's changed a little bit. But in September, I'll be going back to school to do my master's in, in um, script writing and story design. So I want to be a writer. 
Um, but more specifically, I would, I would probably, I foresee myself also near mid or close to the end of my career teaching. I feel like, I feel like I have a knack for teaching, but I don't want to do that without having real world experience. And I want to teach in post-secondary, not in high school. So it, uh, I'm going to get some experience first and I've chosen hopefully the, the realm of like writing and producing. And, um, I like, I, the world of indie is really hectic. I would like, I would like to, you know, try uh, something. Well, I mean, I'm sure the world of commercial production is really hectic too. But um, I would like to, like I was saying earlier, as as I get into doing more projects, every project sort of change in scope, even if a little bit slightly. So you want to feel like you're working up, um, and uh, I wouldn't shy away from, you know working in in development even if it was you know from the perspective of a company like entertainment one or or um what's that what's the other one my gosh i'm blanking you know some some, um yeah chorus or anyone uh there's oh my gosh i interviewed at one well anyways all it'll come to me in the middle of a comment in the middle of a statement um but uh yeah sort of development executive type uh, roles where you know maybe you're not penning the the story necessarily, but um, I like the idea of 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 dealing with multiple projects and also having you know you know I don't I don't love office environments, but I I don't love you know not being with people either. Like I don't like I don't like home like work from home twenty four seven either. So it would have to be some sort of mixed sort of job that brings you to multiple places. And so I feel like I couldn't write for the rest of my life, although I love writing. But, um, you know, partnerships like co-writing or or um, working working on projects um, as as a producer, as a creative even. And, you know, I like I like producing because I like bringing teams together and and orienting those teams towards a goal and um but i also can switch that part of my brain off and just work with the writer and work with the director to make creative decisions so it's it's sort of combining that that you know business sense that i think i have the entrepreneurial sense that i think i have and also the creative sense that i know that i I have as well so we'll see totally all options are on the table it sounds like yeah have you seen have you ever seen yourself um or have you ever wanted to sort of be at the helm producing a project um Um, oh totally like i am a type a control freak and i love that it is one of the things i love most about my job now is um the producers that come or like that are recurring clients and we're on the project from the the get-go and so we've we've been involved from the stage of optioning to post-production. I, I love those types of projects because mm-hmm. you know what's happening and you know the ins and outs and you understand the nuances of, of everything. And so you can kind of help the producers problem solve and, and sort stuff out. And you become much more of a producer in those instances than just purely legal. And those are my favorite types of projects. So um, although I love my job and I have no plans of leaving, I could totally see myself working as producer down down the road. Because yeah. like 
you as a like working in legal, you get the eagle eye on everything. I understand how all the parts fit together. I understand how everything happens. Like there's, especially when our bigger clients, like not a lot happens that we don't look over. Uh, So I've seen a lot. And so I think maybe in five years, I could be called to produce, but uh, we shall see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, And, and hopefully it does happen. I, I, I I would be nice. It would be nice to do it myself as well. Like just feel like I have to, you know, prepare myself for it because it's almost required that you do have that type A personality. A hundred percent. You know, if you're, if you're at the very helm of it, but I I also find that at least in, in what I've read and people I've talked to and producers come from, um, producers come from multiple backgrounds. There are so many producers that come from business backgrounds and legal backgrounds and, and well, there's different types of producers that yeah, you need on a project, right? Yes, yeah, like, yeah. there are creative producers, there are business producers, yeah. there are, there are financing producers. Like, there's a lot of different nuances about what it means to be a producer. But I mean, ultimately, you have to have someone who's like on the business legal side handling that stuff because mm-hmm. that stuff is absolutely essential. And so, <laughs> there is that person that you need to be just like a total type A. Uh, person now like producing or sorry creative producers don't necessarily have to be that same type personality they Mm -hmm. I think can be um, yeah a little bit more in the weeds and the creative side so yeah I'm definitely coming at it from a different angle but I think you can be there's a lot of different personality types and a lot of different backgrounds that would absolutely thrive to be a producer and given the right situation and in suitable areas of of, uh, of prod, like, I think I I've said this before and I talked about this with my family as well. Like it's, it's kind of funny actually, no matter what you go to school for, you know, if you orient yourself towards the film industry, there's a home for you. Like, for example, my sister, um, went to school for international development at Waterloo. So she's big on sustainability and, uh, Netflix and, um, uh, I know Netflix is doing. It. I think I'm pretty sure Amazon's doing. It. I've heard Netflix is now hiring somebody to um, on their bigger shows to manage the water. Um, so, and that's a very sustainability-driven thing, right? They're trying to reduce plastic. And I know somebody who's worked on a show um, in the water truck. And so, if you are passionate about plastic water bottles and getting rid of them and you went to school for sustainability, and you're interested in the film industry, there's a home for you somewhere. And totally. so people come from everywhere. And uh, and on this film in November, uh, I found that the producer was uh, was very creative, but he also had, you know, it's a smaller, smaller project. Like, you know, obviously, uh, you know, big budget in my eyes, but it comes with its own restrictions and constraints and things like that. So everything's sort of dumped on him and he did have a, a partner, but helping him out. Um, but he was very stressed, but he came more from the creative side cause he did write the script. So he's overseeing, he wants to oversee the creative with the director as well. So, um, uh, but it's a lot of work to do, to do two roles where both of those roles, um, where you have to turn off your, your creative brain and deal with a mountain of paperwork. And then the next day turn the creative brain back on. It could be very exhausting. Um, totally. Yeah. It's a slog. <laughs> yeah. 
um, I, I want to go back to one thing you kind of alluded to a little bit, which is um, being involved in a project at various stages from optioning to, um, you know, to the final credits. Um, and, and uh, you know, do you ever, like, tell me a little bit about, about that and when, when do you normally um, get involved and does it, does it vary and does it vary, you know, for example, with the size of the budget? Yes, it definitely varies based on the size of the budget. Um, generally, projects with a healthy budget will be involved every stage of the production uh, because they can kind of afford to take us on. Now, with that being said, um, I would encourage you, if you're a producer, to reach out really at any stage um, because even if you don't necessarily have the biggest budgets, first of all, there, there may be something that we can do to help kind of work it out. But also we may be able to point you into the right direction of things to think about uh, and things to remember so that you don't fall into pitfall, pitfalls that, uh, pit holes, sorry, pit holes that uh, are a lot harder to clean up afterwards. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you are optioning uh, any kind of property, you really want to make sure that the agreement is comprehensive and coherent. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that it makes sense. And so, you know, sometimes it's worthwhile to, well, I would actually say all the time, it's worthwhile to go to a lawyer and just say, can I have a draft option agreement? I understand that, you know, it may be different in different circumstances and it may need adapting. And, you know, I'm okay with taking that on, but I just really need a strong, solid base so that I'm making sure that I'm getting the proper assignment of rights, whatever it may be. So that would be if, you know, if you have literally no budget and you're in the business, you're trying to get into the business, then that would be a great opportunity to reach out. And then you just know that you have a clean chain of title moving forward. Um, obviously to the extent that I can totally take on the option, draft it, negotiate it, deal with everything like that. Obviously that's ideal because, um, Sometimes people, if, you know, if it's a person with a lot more clout, they're going to have a lot more to say about the option that you give them, right? And so, you know, dealing with those contractual nuances is, is important. So um, I hope that answers your question in terms of getting involved at the, at the early stages. But, uh, you know, oftentimes people don't need options, right? They're just doing their own project and then they come to us when they need to get bound with insurance. So literally the project's done, everything's been um, squared away and they come to us and they say, we need you to approve this for ENO. Uh, we have, you know, we have to get this bound and then we have to go, okay, whoa, 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 we have to backtrack. We have to make sure all the right agreements are in place and then obviously review the film for any issues. So, you know, really people come to us at any stage, uh, maybe just for one agreement, maybe for the whole film, it totally depends. And um, it depends on your budget. It depends on a lot of things, to be honest, but you can come to us at any point. Yeah. And I, and I think, and, I, and it's, I asked, uh, you know, Front Row Insurance when I had the conversation with them, um, a similar question and um, and it was the same. It's always the same answer, right? It's 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 very it's encouraged to reach out early, and um, and I'll say from experience as somebody as a younger person who's out of school three four years, um, you know, still working on projects, 
you know, that are, uh, the budgets amounting to like, let's say under 15 or $20,000, you're, you, there is this immediate hesitation to go, okay, well, you know, I should probably talk to a lawyer about, about these things. And these are projects where, you know, there's, there's, there's one producer, uh, who probably, who either wrote it or there's one producer who didn't write it. And there's a director who wrote it. And it's a small team of probably less than 20 people total. And there's, there's no company you're doing it as a sole proprietor or you're doing it as a, you know, as a partnership. There might be a partnership agreement involved that you just drafted yourself. And um, there's this hesitation. It's like, oh, well, you know, my mom works with lawyers. Lawyers are expensive, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spend that if I, you know, I want the money to end up on screen. And you're just hesitant because you're, you, you, you don't have a lot of money to work with to begin with. And you don't know what the, you know, what the conversation is going to be like and what the, what the cost is going to be like. And, and I, and, and so it is good to know, and it's good to reassure the audience of our podcast as well that, you know, cause they're young, they're normally younger. They're supposed to be younger. If we're doing our job right, they're younger, um, the, you know, to just go out and reach out. So it's good to remind them of that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no harm in just giving us a call and we can hopefully get you on the right path if you have concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of actually resources available for young and like producers with just no budget from the various guilds. Um, there are sample agreements online that you can find. Um I can't speak to how good they are. <laughs> I haven't thoroughly vetted them, but there are resources available if you, you know, look mm-hmm. high and low. Yeah, also. and this is a question that I, you know, I have a friend from high school who's studying to become a lawyer and she's not work she's not stud- she's studying first of all she's studying in America and she's so the law's a little bit different um, over there. So that there's differences, but we have discussions about contracts and things like that and and um for example, a simple one that I do, and I just do it up myself based on a, a draft of something that I, I, you know, I had from school, um, is a crew agreement. So something simple like a deal memo that is signed <laughs> to commit. The last production we did, we actually had some people who were volunteers and some people who were not. And the ones who were not, you know, I hadn't done something like that before. So I actually had to... Um, amend the agreement to actually include payment. And um, the version that I had before, it was the same same one. I just had to add wording. And the question that I think I have and some some younger producers have is, you don't have any, I, I don't have any legal training. Um, you know, if there's a problem that, arise, that arises, could that agreement even hold up? And, and, um, without talking to a lawyer, how would you know that? And, and can you even write your own agreements? Like, I don't understand how that even works. Like it's it's sort of funny, but you know. Yes. Okay. So the short answer is yes. That contract will likely be enforceable. Um, I mean, like to the extent that everyone's like signing it under sound mind and there's no like duress or anything like that. Yeah. The contract will hold up. Um, You know, the one thing to be aware of is that generally if you've drafted the contract, any, you know, interpretation of the contract or any, you know, um, where there is uh, vague language or something is unclear, it's going to be, you know, on its face, 
interpreted against you. Yep. Um, so it's something to be aware of. Um, but yeah, like that's a contract is a contract. And th that's that, <laughs> really. That's the short, the long and the short of it. You don't have to be a lawyer to write a valid contract. You know, I wanted to hear it from a lawyer, but uh, um, I think a lot of us just uh, operate under that assumption. And and it's good. It's good to just get. It's you know. It, it is good to get it properly written, though, because that could get you in trouble, right? I mean, that, that interpretation is, 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 you know, could be, um, uh, couldn't could be not great for you. So, well, here's the thing. To be honest, uh, what we see in contracts that we get that are clearly not from lawyers or, you know, <laughs> badly drafted, not to, you know, yeah. make anyone feel bad. Um, isn't necessarily that it's it's vague, but just more often than not, there's a lot of things missing from mm -hmm. it that that really need to be in there, especially with, you know, um, film contracts, production contracts, like there's certain language that you really have to see in every agreement mm -hmm. that is on a lot more often, um, uh, which a lot of times is missing. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how many, and many times that we see it's missing. So, you know, things like making sure that there's always an assignment of rights, no matter what your contribution is on the film, it needs to be made clear in every single agreement who owns the copyright to the work that you're making. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really good example of one. Um, uh, because that's often missing, you know, and if you haven't clearly defined who the copyright holder is as the, you know, the producer or whoever it is, you know, the, the prodco, if, if you have a single purpose vehicle, um, then there, that, that's the problem yeah. <laughs> for a lot of, uh, a lot of different reasons. You also always want to make sure that you have a waiver of injunctive relief, uh, so that people can't come and, and stop the distribution of your film, because ultimately, you know, if they do, that's going to cause a problem for you on, like, obviously, because you can't get your film out there. Uh, but if they have a claim against you, you know, you can't make any money from the film. And so ultimately, it's just going to be, a, it's going to create a bigger problem. Um, another one we like to see is indemnity. We always like to see indemnity language in there. Um, a, a waiver of moral rights is another important one. There's a lot of important things, but that those are just the highlights. I've, I've, Definitely familiar with some of the language because I, I, from college, we did a, we had a producing course and we talked about a lot of those, um, uh, terms and, and some of that language. So I'm familiar with some of that language. I don't know the ins and outs of everything, but, um, I've, I've also seen some contracts, uh, you know, real world, real world contracts with, with some of the same language. Um, it, in terms of that, that copyright and ownership and chain of title and, and, um, having that being, um, you, you clean, I guess. Um, uh, I, I took, a I took a producer's core, a producer essentials course online. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a course online and they, they did a full module on a clean chain of title. And it was, um, there's a lot of information and, you know, a lot of the times at, at the level that we're, I'm producing at, the the writer is the director and and the, the writer the writer director is um is making all of the decision is making all of the creative decisions for him or herself and the producer 
is brought on board by that person to do the paperwork essentially to to manage the production so that they don't have to think about those kinds of uh, situations and a lot of the times at this level unless you're getting a grant or you're getting some sort of um, uh, grant financing uh, or financing from another source you're paying for it yourself um, in a situation um, in a situation where the producers brought on by the person who wrote the script and the person who's making the creative decisions. Uh, and then the movie goes through the process of, of paying people and getting made and, and what have you in that sort of a situation where you don't have a big arrangement you don't have a, you don't have a, the writer directors either operating as an individual or with their own company. Um, uh, how clear cut is it? Who owns it in that sort of a situation? Is it just, does it just land with as a default unless, uh, you know, uh, pending any sort of agreements as a default? Um, is it as easy as saying that the writer and the director, they own it because they wrote it? I don't believe so. Now, I don't think that this has been actually tested in Canadian courts, but what my understanding is, is that if there is no clear paperwork outlining who owns the copyright, the assumption is that the director owns the copyright to the film and the director will ultimately be the owner of the film. Okay. And so, like I said, this is not, uh, I don't think that this is as clear cut as to say that, but I certainly would never want to find myself in a situation where I was having to do that kind of analysis. It really should always be laid out extremely clearly in paperwork and it doesn't need to be complicated, but everyone needs to sit around a table and decide who's gonna own the copyright into in, in, the, in the production, whatever it may be. All the you know, key players need to have that conversation and it needs to be made clear because if, you know, if the, the producer wants to own the copyright and it's not clearly laid out, you know, that's going to be a problem. And, and um, I have seen examples and I won't go into too many specifics, but um, for various reasons, but um, I have seen examples that could severely complicate the issue. I would imagine because there has been an instance in some, in a, in a project that I was I was on, where a producer uh, came on board and was involved in you know partially in the development of the project, um, paid for the production but didn't direct it, didn't write it. Um, the director claims that in a conversation, so verbal because we can't find any text messages, um, that that money that was spent by the producer for the writer and the director's production was uh grant money that's it and then the production was made and there's still no contracts and so the fact that the person who wrote the script did not did not pay a hundred percent of the financing probably complicates it when you have another body who's come on paper well i say on paper as a just as a statement of phrase but you know it comes on paper as a producer um does does that work you know makes the production under the their company their it was an incorporation and pays for the production and the only contract and i did that under quotes because it was verbal um was that the money i'm giving you is a grant and 
there's not much evidence that they had that conversation. So yeah. it, it's, it's a complicated situation, I would imagine, because if you're directing a film and I'm saying, I'll give you $10,000 to make your film, and that's all we say, and you make it, and we don't, go in, we don't enter into a, a paper contract, later down the line I could just say, well, I paid for it, so I own it. I mean, I don't think that you can say that. No? So, um, yeah. I mean, that would be a very, very complicated analysis. That would be very uh, fact-specific. And so I don't want to, you know, try to get too much in the weeds of that particular scenario. But like I said, I believe that the assumption is that the director um, is the copyright holder. And, you know... The whole idea of, of work for hire, for example, which yeah. you may be familiar with, mm -hmm. is not um, a given just because you pay someone to do something. There has to be a clear, uh, con there has to be a contract that clearly lays out that it's a work for hire mm -hmm. engagement. You know, the law doesn't support uh, assumptions about people waiving their copyright entitlements or assigning their copyright entitlements to the extent that anybody is assigning or waiving, there has to be a, a contract that clearly states that. Um, it's probably not even gonna be enough that someone said it, to be honest with you. So, you know, I would be incredibly weary of giving someone money without a contract. To be honest with you, I don't think that that's ever advisable because mm -hmm. yeah. you don't have any rights after that. Because then it, if there's no evidence that there was, you know, it was a loan or a grant or anything like that, well, it's, it's you know, you don't want to take that risk. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I, I was very surprised that, that um, the director and producer went forward without putting anything on paper. Um, yeah. I mean, even if it's not the most well-written contract, you have to write something down because you have, there has to be a meeting of minds, you know, like everybody has to get on the same page and everyone's being, I think a little bit short sighted to just do things like that on a handshake deal mm -hmm. um, would be my, <laughs> would be my opinion, but I obviously don't know the facts of that scenario, you know, intimately. When it comes to starting a company, uh, I, you know, there's, the the main thing that's on my mind about that I think is at least in the industry it's it's standard to uh, set up single purpose companies and I've seen this happen. Um, I worked at a Chesler Promoter in Toronto um, for uh, for five months as a placement, um, and uh, the executive in charge of um, was it finance? I think it was finance. And he was just explaining to me the process of setting up single purpose companies. And the main thing that's on my mind about that is a lot of, a lot of people also have their own sort of what they call the production company, which is the brand that they operate under. Would that company then just, I guess, own the single purpose company? And when the film is completed that single purpose company d dissolves and then the rights go to the parent company. How does all that kind of happen and, and work paperwork wise and law legally wise and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So single purpose companies are useful, m mostly 
for tax credit purposes mm -hmm. because they keep everything really cleanly uh, together, basically. So, you know, we don't have finances being, uh, let's call the big, like the bigger company, the umbrella company being wrapped up with the single purpose company. So it helps keep everything on the straight and narrow, basically. So, um, you know, if you're getting tax credits, it's extremely advisable that you do incorporate a single purpose uh, company because it will just make your life way easier. Uh, there is a cost associated with, you know, incorporating. Uh, you know, at the firm, I'm actually not sure exactly what the cost is. I know our firm charges $1,100 per incorporation. So it gives you an idea, which is basically just disbursements plus a fee. So it's, you know, the actual cost of incorporation is somewhere around there. <laughs> I don't even want to speculate what it is. I just know what our firm charges to incorporate. Um, and it's a, it's a very straightforward process. Uh, to be honest, I don't personally undertake it, um, but I know that it's, a, it's very straightforward. Um, our office manager, Molly, who is incredibly lovely, handles all our incorporations at the office. Uh, shout out to Molly. Mm -hmm. And um, and so it, that actually, the process of incorporating is extremely straightforward. It's just a case of the decision should be based on, you know, a couple of things, you know, do you have the finances to incorporate, you know, if you're super, super small budget, that could be a factor, you know, are you getting tax credits? And are you ready to take on the obligations associated with having a corporation, right? Because there are certain tax implications there are things you need to be aware of. And if you know, you're not going to be earning that much money through an incorporation, you know, it may not be worth it. And so right. it's the you have to think about all those things. Um, so but generally, yes. So if we have um, a company that's um, broadly known, let's call them, I don't know what company, to, I don't want to shout anybody out uh, and put anybody on the spot, but let's, let's call them like framework, right? Sure. If you are a, you're a big, like big producer, you're wheeling and dealing on each production that you do, you're going to have a single purpose vehicle and you're yep. going to be either you and your partners are going to be the shareholders of those single purpose companies. Um, and so a lot of times it's might not necessarily be worth it to incorporate those single purpose companies right when you are optioning productions, because you might have, you know, tax implications for a couple of years before that, you know, piece of property actually goes into production. And so right. what time, what do we, so it's just something to think about from a practical perspective. Framework actually might be the person or the entity that's optioning a lot of things. And there may be a lot of development happening through framework. And then what happens is that you just assign those rights to whom, to whichever, you know, single purpose entity that you have then incorporated for that production. So assigning agreements is like really never a problem. It's a super, super straightforward thing, especially when you're doing it between friendly parties. Mm -hmm. um, and then that, that company exists. They generally, all of the contracts under that production are handled through that entity. Um, and then, you know, tax credits take a certain amount of time to go through after the project's done because of a number of administrative reasons. So you generally want to hold on to that property or sorry, you generally want to hold on to that single purpose vehicle for at least two years post the end of your production, at which point uh, you kind of have two options. Either you can dissolve it uh, and, you know, assign all the rights back to framework as it were, or you can actually just amalgamate it in to framework so that it just kind of gets absorbed by right. the bigger umbrella company. So you have some options. 
Um, yeah, some really in the weeds stuff here, but, uh, but it's, it's actually relatively straightforward. You just kind of have to know what's happening. Right. And, and it, it, like you said, for, it's cleaner for tax purposes and, and, and for accounting too, because I imagine, you know, if you have a single purpose company that opens a bank account and you have money coming in and out of that bank account, if you were to put that those transactions and mix them up into the bank account for the parent company, it would look like there are various expenditures that don't seem to f- fit what you're doing perhaps. And, and yeah, exactly. Know, like, it will get cleaner, super yeah. complicated, super fast. And I mean, to the extent that you're opening up a bank account solely for the purpose of your, your, you know, project entity, yeah. then uh, in theory, or I guess in practice too, 100% of the budget gets deposited into that account and yeah. spent through that account. And spent you know, the account. Yeah. it's, it's, it's easier yeah. uh, from an accounting purpose. It's, I mean, you know, way easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, now most of the productions that I'm working on as, as the producer are, um, smaller productions, um, under 15,000 where the producer is um, uh, unincorporated. And mm-hmm. this last production that I was on was one where um, I was sort of, I was producing, but the 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 director and the director's family was financing it. So I was, I was helping her manage the finances and pay people and keep records of everything and keep receipts and keep invo- and keep invoices and do, contracts and things like that i was helping her with keeping that relatively organized um it just you know it confuses me when when there isn't like a single purpose body taking care of um taking care of that stuff but i guess when you are unincorporated is less important i mean sorry when you are uh when you're unincorporated and and you're not um you're not applying for tax credits and there's not a lot of money going in and out and there's not a lot of money coming in from various locations. It's a little less confusing. Um, so, so it's, it's a total valid way of, of producing your projects. Totally. And I mean, to the extent that you are an individual who is owning the copyright and you don't have a corporation or a specific corporation for that company, you know, you can still um, open up a bank account, you know, that's expressly for that purpose of production. And, you know, maybe it's connected to your main bank account, but you just have all of your finances thrown, flowing through one thing so that on your statement, it just makes sense. Um, then, you know, there's a, there's ways around it, but I mean, you know, on a smaller budget like that, you may not need to really be accountable to anybody in the same way as you are with tax credits too, right? So there might not need to be that same um, strictness about about uh, how you account. But, you know, with that being said, with, with grant monies, there are certain restrictions oftentimes, right. even on a smaller scale. So it's, it's, it's a good thing to get into the habit of like being extremely meticulous as you, as you start out, it'll serve you well. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I, as I've as I've done more projects, I've keep I just keep keeping better records every time. I just feel like I feel like you know it's um, it's just important to know, especially when you're paying somebody, you know, 
when you receive the invoice, filing it away and always keeping those, those records. And, and a hundred percent. It's, uh, and, and it's like you, you live and learn too, right? Yeah, with, for with sure. This yeah. industry, it's like every project that you work on, you, you know, have new challenges, you encounter new things and you can kind of just, you know, grow and, mm-hmm. and get better at, at every single turn. I know that's, that's how I feel. I feel like if I looked at what I was doing a year ago, I would probably just, cringe you know it's yeah. like you're constantly improving and you're yeah, constantly sure. getting better yeah and even at the unincorporated level uh, uh small budget level you like i've it's not hard to open it's not hard to open an, a bank account mm. and you don't have to um i bank with simply financial you don't have to deposit a lot of money to hold that to have that bank account like you, the, you know i you don't have to keep a lot of money. So if you, even if you wanted to just open a bank account that that's separate from your personal finances, if you if you do a lot of projects on a yearly basis, um, and you wanted to open a bank account for money and money out to just put things, you know, money aside for your own projects, it it's not hard to manage um, a second bank account and there wouldn't be a lot of money going in into it anyways. And if it's just for you and just for practice too, if you wanted to practice, I guess at a smaller level, but yeah, I know it was a, it was a, and, and you're, and it's not a, it's, it's, we shot for two days. So it's not, and that's when, that's when really all the money is, at this level, really all the money is spent because nobody was paid for prep. Everybody was just paid for mm-hmm. the, the two days that they spent because we didn't have enough money to pay everybody for prep. So all the money, almost all the money, I would say 90% of the money is spent in in production anyways at this, at, at this level. You know, you spent maybe $1,500 on, on insurance at the beginning and then the rest of it during production and maybe, and then we're working for free in, in post-production too. So, you know, you maybe buy a couple of hard drives and spend money on festivals and that's, <laughs> so most of the money is spent in production anyway. So after two days, it's all out of your account and, uh, and the rest is, is the fun stuff. So it's, uh, it's almost not, like you said, it's almost not worth it. Like if you're going to spend 1500 bucks incorporating or $1,100 incorporating, it's almost not worth it because there goes 15 to 20 percent of your budget anyways yeah it just depends right it's you have to be uh tactical as much as um you obviously always want to be conscientious and um yeah i think you know if uh, i i would say i i am surprised that i don't get calls from people more often just asking really general questions about how to get things going and where to find things. And to be honest, I, what most of our big clients do uh, for reference is at the beginning of every project, we send them uh, what's called a start set. And it basically just has a whole bunch of agreements that they will need in the process of production. So they're not coming to us for every single crew deal or every single, um, you know, release. Mm-hmm they have the tools to be able to uh, basically manipulate the contracts, you know, to put in, uh, you know, if they're contracting for a location agreement, they just have to put in the location agreement, uh, you know, details of the contracting person, right? So it makes it a lot more straightforward for them. And, you know, for me, it's like between an hour and a half, two hours of work, which is a lot cheaper than me 
having actually drafted all those contracts for them, right. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, they come back to us when people have comments, when there's something weird about a particular deal. Um, you know, product placement deals are notoriously wonky <laughs> and need some negotiating and ironing out. Um, and then obviously, you know, all the other contracts like the actor agreements, the director agreements, the writer agreements oftentimes need a little bit more massaging and negotiating based on the deal. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of value that we can add uh, without a huge price tag based on your needs and just putting together uh, like a start pack for you as a producer or you as a writer or director or whatever so that you can go forth into each and every production feeling, you know, confident that you have uh, the right tools in your toolkit. Well, uh, I can tell you this, that I'll be doing that uh, for everything going forward, even even if it's small. And I'm just, I'm happy to have this conversation and, ma you know, make a new contact and talk to people because it's, uh, it's been, uh, you know, pandemic was hard. I mean, it's still, we're still in it, but it was uh, the, the virtual thing, like you, you know, like you said at the beginning of the episode, maybe soon you'll flirt with, uh, you know, doing it in person. And it'd be nice to meet you in person. Yes, it, um, it definitely would. And I think that, you know, sometimes lawyers can feel so intimidating. And like you said, like there are lawyers in Toronto who've been working, you know, for 40 years and are incredible wealths of knowledge. But then there are people like me and other people at my firm that are a little bit more like young and spry and yeah. passionate and uh, cheaper. And so... <laughs> It's always, um, you know, there there are people out there at like just in the way that you're you feel like you're starting out, yeah. and um, not sure who to turn to, you know, like that's to some degree how I feel, you know what I mean? Like I'm still new in the industry and I'm still figuring things out, and um, so I'm I'm always really excited to meet young producers who are you know have big dreams and uh, are passionate about the industry because you know my hope is always that we'll grow together, you know. Yeah, and and that's the big thing, growing, growing together and learning from each other. And and um, we uh, we were on the same project and didn't even know it. So yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious sure, if we were on emails and I didn't even realize. I'm gonna uh, look probably probably I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so? You just I saw my name so. in the credits. I think that's I just saw you your name in the Excel spreadsheet. So for for our audience. Um, can you just, can you tell us what the company name is, uh, where you work? Oh yeah, of course. So it's, it's Goldenberg and company yep. now, uh, professional corporations. So you can, our new, well, we just changed our name okay. and we have a brand new website. So you can, uh, you can Google us and, um, my name is of course, Olivia Daneltruck. So you can Google me and, uh, and they'll come up and there's finally a picture of me on the website. So, uh, Fantastic. you'll know awesome. who I am. <laughs> and, and, and how big is the company? Like, is it? Employee. So there's three, there's three lawyers two and lawyers. there's one, um, there's one office manager, executive assistant, whatever, whatever she is, she has many titles, many roles. Um, so, so Dan Goldenberg, he's the boss. Uh, he's the partner, the named partner. And then basically the two associates, uh, Ben and I, and Ben has been around longer than I have and is, uh, and they're both very wise. And, and Molly is kind of, like I said, she's, she's, you know, she handles a lot of, uh, corporate things as well as, you know, typical office manager stuff. Yeah. And um, she's the best. She brings the best energy. And and the whole office, we're we're all quite 
relatively young for for a law firm and they're everyone's got a great personality and it's really fun and really easy to talk to and super knowledgeable so um well that's the fun thing too you want to you want to deal with a law firm i feel like you really do like steve you might have saw in the episode at the beginning of the episode steve said we're not too far from car salesmen (laughs) and and that that's just a funny comment but it's true it's almost like you know like insurance brokers are there and they're they're providing a service and they're uh and and that's you know to the to the creative team that's that we need it and we get it yeah and um, i don't think that we see ourselves in the same way i don't want to speak on behalf of the whole firm but i think that we see ourselves as much more of like partners yes in, yeah. in the production and, uh, and we want to you know we want to have a relationship yeah. with you and we uh, want to exactly. be pals yeah. as well as being you know like you know, uh, really good advisors. We want to, you know, have a good relationship yeah. on a personal level. And, and, uh, I think with a lot of our, you know, re- repeat clients, we, we do. And yeah. I, I like to think that's why they come back. And it would, it would do us good to, to understand and know that. And, and, and he was joking about like the stigma, of course, about that yes, surrounds of business and legal and insurance people in the, in this yeah. industry. So, um, hopefully through this lo- normal lawyers, we're cool. Lawyers. Yeah. You're cool lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can answer this really quickly cause we'll wrap it up. But, uh, for, for a producer and their budget, um, a lot of the times the way that it's in school, the way that we were taught to budget for contingencies is through a percentage. Um, okay. does, when a producer budgets for legal, do they do it similarly? How do they how do they get that number on the line? Do they would they, would you suggest just talking to a law firm and saying, "What is this going to cost me?" Or should the producer do it in the inverse way of just saying, "Okay, well, it's about this, and we'll just budget for that and see if we can fulfill that." You know what? I would always ask the question um, because the scope that you think that you need uh, from us may be different than the reality uh, in to your benefit and vice versa. Right. Um, And so probably best just to ask because, you know, the quote might be lower than you're expecting or it might be higher. Um, And then, you know, to the extent that you come to us and you say, look, this is the budget, you know, we may be flexible in in finding a way to help you too. Right. Uh, So, I think it's just best to have a conversation and then we can deal with it on a case by case basis. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and so very simple, short answer. And that's, that's, um, that's the best way. And I look forward to meeting you in person. And same. well, thank you for reaching out and, um, I'd love to keep uh, my eye on Canadian made and well, thank uh, you for yeah <laughs> and uh, I'll definitely reach out again for uh, um, project related things as well so yes um, do don't hesitate to uh, to send me a note I say that to all the times people and um, people rarely take me up on it so I I will take you up on it I don't know <laughs> I don't know when the next project is um, to be honest because the masters is coming my way but the, I have various uh, I have other very various younger producer colleagues who, and I'd be happy to recommend uh, recommend your company as well. So. That's very kind. Thank you very much. And I'm so uh, pleased to have met you and gotten to talk to you. It's been a lot of fun. So I'm yeah. looking forward to staying in touch. 
Thanks for listening to Framework, the last podcast about film, episode nine. If you want to listen to Canadian Made, the podcast, you can check it out on Spotify. If you're listening on Spotify right now and you want to check out additional content, you can go to YouTube. If you want to be on the show or if you want to comment, you can send us an email at rcpodcast.gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Links in the description below. And I look forward to seeing you all again on episode 10 of Framework, the last podcast about film.